to be here to be worshiping together with you this morning, whether you're in the building or joining us from home today, or wherever you might be watching online, we're glad that you are together with us. Let's participate in our monthly memory verse together from Proverbs 16, verse 9. The heart of a man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. Proverbs 16, 9. I wonder if you ever have found yourself in a hopeless situation. Last night we were enjoying dinner in our home. We were around the kitchen table and the vegetable of the evening was a vegetable medley. And it involved uh, some, uh, I, I believe that they were zucchinis sliced up very thinly and seasoned well. But also one other significant vegetable that children from Haiti have never eaten before. Brussels sprouts. <laughs> now, I don't know how many people in here enjoy a good Brussels sprout. I happen to. I enjoy a good Brussels sprout. One of our children, who is recently new to uh, the States and to America, was sitting at the table, and he is a very uh, respectful individual who would never want to appear to be rude in, in any situation. And before I had any chance to tell him what he was about to put in his mouth, in went the Brussels sprout. Now you all know the look. It's, it's the look of the infant when, you know, their whole life they've had milk, milk, milk. Then you give them the Gerber peaches and they're like, hey, this isn't so bad. Then you give them the Gerber uh, other sweet things. Oh, this isn't so bad. But one day you open up the can of peas. You all remember that look. And now we have a child at the kitchen table with his mouth full of something that he absolutely cannot take another chew of. <laughs> Wanting to not show any disrespect or dishonor towards mom and the food. And so he kindly and quietly removed himself from the table, walked over to the trash can, and we just saw. <laughs> at that point, we all knew what had gone on, and we all laughed, uh, himself included. Uh, it was a hopeless situation for him, but he handled it well. Now, that's a hopeless situation with some levity behind it. Some of us find ourselves in more difficult circumstances from day to day and time to time. Many, for many of us, maybe 2020 itself feels like a pretty hopeless circumstance. This has been a pretty difficult year. There is a lot that is going on. Our world is changing rapidly all around us. And if you want to get an idea of, of the kind of context that the book of Ruth opens in, perhaps you would take this year of 2020 that we're living in and you would amplify it over the course of 250 to 300 years. Imagine 2020 for 250 the 300 years straight. And if you can do that, you might catch a glimmer of what the nation of Israel was enduring through the time of Judges. And now you might ask, well, why does Judges matter? This is a study through the book of Ruth, is it not? Well, it is. And the answer would be that Judges and Ruth are very, very much connected and interrelated. Ruth's account actually happens during the time of the judges. And understanding the context of judges helps us to understand the beginning 
of the book of Ruth, which is what we will begin exploring today. Friends, it was not a fun time to be an Israelite. The nation was still relatively young. It was struggling with its place as an identity and as a people. Leadership transitions that had happened from Moses to Joshua, they had gone rather smoothly. But after Joshua died, the leadership of the nation was less reliant on that one singular strong leader. The nation failed. The nation failed to completely secure and take dominion over the land of promise. And quickly, the people of the nation descended into chaos. There was intermarriage with other nations who worshipped pagan gods such as Baal and Asherah. The people fell captive to their surrounding enemies. They were oppressed by foreign rulers. So what God would do in the period of judges is that he would raise up leaders who would free the people from their oppressors, and then they would come back to him. And the cycle repeats itself over and over and over again throughout the book. Throughout Judges, it's, it's one of its, if it's a book, if you haven't sat down and read Judges in one whole sitting, just make sure you have something in your stomach before you do so. But, but probably not too much though. Because it's a difficult book. It's a gruesome book. There are accounts that are depicted in the book that are truly horrible. Of that people are participating and people are murdered and killed with unusual weapons such as daggers. And there's even an account of someone being killed with a tent peg. Ox goads, donkeys, jawbones. Leadership is weak in the country. And there are clear examples of faithlessness by those who are leading. There are rash vows being made with God, one that even leads to the sacrifice of one's own daughter. There's even the account in the book, and and don't go looking for it now because you'll just be distracted the rest of the sermon. I've done that before. There's an account in the book of a woman who was chopped up and her body parts were sent to different people all throughout the country. The list could go on and on. Israel was a far cry from where they had found themselves under Joshua's leadership. And towards the end of the book of Judges, we find this passage that sums the state of the people up perfectly. Judges 21, 25. In those days, there was no king in Israel and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And yet, in the middle of all of this, sometime probably between Othniel and Ehud, we have this narrative of Ruth. Under Joshua's leadership, Israel was like a blazing fire. Under the leadership of judges, there was no more flames, only ashes and charred logs. Evidence of what was once a great inferno as Joshua's leadership captured The promised land. And considering this, we see Ruth's story almost as smoke. It appears that the fire is dead. There are no more flames, not even a flicker. Yet we know this, where there is smoke, there is fire. 
And Ruth's narrative is evidence that God was still at work, even in this dark time, preserving and protecting his people. Under the ashes and the charred logs, God, our great ember of hope, was still burning. He had not failed. He is faithful, and he will always be faithful. Ruth's account is different than other accounts in the book of Judges, which is why we find it at the end of Judges, almost as an appendix. God's redemptive and restorative purposes for humanity would not be stifled or hindered or put out by the unfaithfulness and disobedience of his people. And perhaps more than anything else, Ruth is a story of how God wins back, redeems his covenant or chosen people, even from the darkest and bleakest of circumstances. How does God continue to demonstrate his steadfast love when the world around us appears so broken? When we examine and explore the book of Ruth, we examine a book that describes a time that's not much different from the one we live in today. The world was changing rapidly. Nations were moving out of the Bronze Age into the Iron Age. Technology was advancing. Agriculture was changing. Industry was seeing rapid growth. Military powers were becoming stronger and faster. All of this, why Israel sit in its land once full of promise, the land of milk and honey, yet now ravaged by famine, and disease. And this, friends, is where our journey begins as we open the pages of Ruth. Today we are confronted with a very difficult decision that one Israelite man faces. Take your Bibles and turn to the book of Ruth. Ruth chapter 5 verses 1 to 5 today. It comes immediately after the book of Judges. Joshua judges Ruth. Ruth chapter 1 is where we begin, verses 1 to 5. Shall we pray? Indeed, you are faithful, God. Sometimes we look at the world around us and we have the propensity to feel hopeless. And yet the testimony of your word and the testimony of our lives would show that you are a God who keeps his promises, who is always faithful and true. Lord, we pray that as we explore your word today, the opening of this great book of Ruth, that we would rejoice in those truths. That for Naomi, even though all looks lost around her and the situation is bleak and hopeless, that you are still at work. And for those of us who sit today in similar circumstances or feeling in a similar way, or those of us who are here today who have felt that way, the situation is bleak, it feels hopeless, we cannot see. Would you help us, Father, give us faith to trust who you are and to know you are at work. 
In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Ruth chapter 1, verses 1 to 5. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. And a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab. He and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech. And the name of his wife, Naomi. And the names of his two sons were Malon and Kilion. They were Ephathrathites from Bethlehem in Judea. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died. And she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of one was Orpah and the name of the other, Ruth. They lived there about ten years and both Malin and Kilion died. So that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. Church, famine is deadly. When there is famine in the land, death and disease follow. And in the course of human history, famine has accounted for the deaths of millions of lives. What accompanies them are often disease, starvation, and death. First the livestock and the produce becomes diseased, and then it dies. Next, the people who rely on this produce and this livestock for their food and sustenance follow in a similar fate. There are diseases that follow famine, cholera, measles, malaria, pneumonia, acute malnutrition. All of these, without proper treatment, can be severely damaging, even deadly, to the body. And the book of Ruth opens by presenting us with a problem. In the land of promise, the land given to the Israelites by God, there was famine. What is a man to do when famine tears apart his homeland? A homeland that already at the time of Judges is roiled in political and social and military unrest. That defined its period. In the midst of this terrible famine, one man has a choice to make. Stay and wait it out, potentially risking your livelihood and the lives of your family, or leave. And move on to what appear to be greener pastures. And for the man at the beginning of our narrative, the complexities of his decision begin to become very clear. Elimelech was an Israelite from Bethlehem in Judah. Now what's interesting here is that the name Bethlehem, that name for that city, literally means in the Hebrew language, house of bread. Hence, one of the first ironies that we see in the book of Ruth is that the house of bread has been emptied by famine. And a contrast begins to emerge early in our study. And the book of Ruth consistently contrasts concepts, and specifically these concepts of fool 
and empty. And closely related, we find another contrast when we consider that the text tells us that Elimelech and his family were Ephathrathites. A word again, which in Hebrew literally means a people of fruit. And so again, a contrast and a bit of irony of people who are known as fruitful are living in a fruitless and famine-filled land. Here is an idea of where we are. You can see Bethlehem on our map. Now, you can't see our raisin. Okay, our raisin is at the top of the map. It's off the map right now. But you can see the rope, the Jordan River, and you can see the top of the peanut. All right, raisin rope peanut. And the top of the peanut there is Bethlehem. And you can see where Moab is in relationship to Bethlehem. And Bethlehem was part of this promised land that God had given his covenant people. It's situated within the pocket of land that was given to the tribe of Judah. And what do we know of Bethlehem? Whose future birthplace? Jesus. Quite literally, Elimelech's land was a gift from God. Should he abandon this gift for the prospects of a better life in a foreign land? And not just a foreign land, but a foreign land that was considered at the time to be hostile towards his own people. And before we answer that question, perhaps we would consider that it was not lawful for the Israelites to sell their land. They were to keep it because it was a gift from God. Leviticus chapter 25, verse 23, the land shall not be sold in perpetuity. And yet Elimelech decides to sojourn. Rather than wait on the Lord's deliverance, he takes matters into his own hands. And isn't his behavior fitting for a book that immediately follows Judges, where in the book of Judges, everyone did what was right in their own eyes. My question, however, would be, is living among enemies and oppressors really a better prospect than living in a land that's ravaged by famine and disease? And so we see in verse 1 of Ruth 1 that Elimelech determines that he is going to uproot his family and move east across the Jordan River to the fair and fertile plains of Moab. And it's very interesting that in the book of Joshua, Judges, and Ruth, you can trace this, whenever a person or people group move away from Jerusalem, guess what follows? Trouble. Trouble. And this because God's covenant and chosen people, the Israelites, were to indwell, fill, subdue, and care for the land that God had gifted them. The land that was given to them by their sovereign king. When one is sojourning away from God and what he has promised, is there really any hope for true and real rest? And pause here with me and look at these contrasts that begin to develop in just the first few verses. We have full and empty. We have a fruitful people leaving a fruitless land. We have sojourn. 
sojourners looking for rest. We have famine. And indeed, we will have harvest. I suspect that God would have desired for Elimelech to stay in the land of promise despite the difficult conditions that surrounded him. Were Elimelech to stay, perhaps we could define him as a man who walked by faith and not by sight. But regardless, he and his family are now living in the land of the enemy, in Moab. And it is important for us to understand who these perpetual enemies of the Israelites were. Who were the Moabites? This is a huge theme throughout the book of Ruth, the Moabite people. And some of us know, some of us remember, that the Moabites find their origins in the family of Lot, who was Abraham's nephew. You might remember that in Genesis 19, Lot gets himself into a sticky situation. He's living in these cities of Sodom and Gomorrah, these evil cities from which God says he's going to destroy. And as his family flees the cities from the destruction that was facing them, you remember what happened to his wife. His wife was told the whole family was turned to run and not look back. And what did Lot's wife do? She looked back. And immediately... The Bible tells us she was turned into a pillar of salt. Now imagine the trauma experienced in that moment by that family. Not only had they been uprooted from the cities they were living in, but they watched as their mother was turned into a pillar of salt before their eyes, escaping by the skin of their teeth into the hills of Zor. And you might remember... Just as Judges is a difficult book, there's a difficult scene in the book of Genesis, chapter 19, verses 30 to 38. You can read it on your own. We won't explore it today. But Lot's daughters get their father drunk. They sleep with him. And they both become pregnant. And they commit this heinous atrocity motivated by fear that they might die without offspring and that Lot's line would end since he had no sons. And not by irony, but by God's design, both daughters deliver a son. The firstborn's daughter's son was given the name Moab. Literally in Hebrew it means of his father what his name meant. The second daughter's son was called Ben-Ami, and he became the father of the Ammonites. Both the Moabites and the Ammonites became regular enemies and oppressors of the Israelites. And in Lot's narrative, we see that through their disobedience, Israel actually perpetuated its own enemies and oppressors. Many scholars date the book of Ruth to be written during a time when the Moabites were actively ruling over and oppressing the Israelites. Between 1302 B.C. and 1284 B.C., there was a famine in Israel. It was an 18-year period when a king named Eglon, who was a Moabite king, was oppressing the Israelites. It is in Judges 3 where we read the historical narrative of a man named Ehud who kills King Eglon in a creative act of espionage that even James Bond himself 
would have been proud of. If you didn't read that one, that's one for further reading later today as well. It's a great one. Don't read it now. You'll be distracted. It's outstanding, though. Ehud's narrative, one of my favorite in all of the Bibles. Very, very sneaky. Some commentators believe that Elimelech moved his family to Moab sometime around 1294 B.C. and that Naomi and Ruth returned to Bethlehem sometime shortly after Ehud killed Eglon around 1284 B.C. And if these numbers are accurate, it would leave Elimelech's family sojourning in Moab for around 10 years, which is what the text says. And when Elimelech and his family leave Bethlehem, They are a family of four. Elimelech, Naomi, and their two sons, Malin and Kilion. And in the names of their children, there is another wordplay going on. And their namesakes make sense because of the famine they were born into. The name Malon literally means sick. While the name Kilion connotates the idea of one who is wasting away. And so now the situation that motivated Elimelech's move becomes even clearer. Here is a husband and a wife, possibly with two sick and wasting away children, seeking to live in a land where their children might have a better chance to survive. And perhaps with this in mind, we can all relate to Elimelech's dilemma. If faced with the same situation, what decision might we make? What fruit would come from Elimelech's decision to abandon his fruitless land? It's a question that's answered in the final few verses that we explore today. Verse 3 moves us forward with this transitional phrase, but... And what we see is that despite his best efforts, despite Elimelech's best attempt to protect his family, guess what happens to him? He dies. Naomi's perfect family of four rather suddenly and unexpectedly becomes a family of three. And taking matters into his own, in his own hands, Elimelech never imagined or planned that this would happen. His decision to leave his inheritance, his neighbors, his people, now has direct ramifications on the family that he's left behind. The decisions, friends, the decisions that we make on a day-to-day basis very often have direct influence On our families and the people who live in closest proximity to us. Take a look at verse 3. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died. And she was left with her two sons. The narrative now moves its focus away from Elimelech and his heritage. And his decision to sojourn in a foreign land. And places it on Naomi and the family that he leaves behind. And the impact that his decision will have on their lives. Naomi is now a widow. And because of her husband's decisions To make his family sojourners, she is stranded. She's stranded in a foreign country, 
surrounded by oppressors and enemies. And not only is Naomi a widow, but now she is also a single mother raising two boys in a foreign land. And I want to take a quick minute this morning because the narrative demands that we talk to our widows and we talk to our single mothers who are here, either in our building or watching online. And I want you to know this. God sees you. You are known and loved by God. He cares deeply about you. He unites the very trustworthiness of his very character to your situation. He is the only God of the ancient Near East who identified himself as the God of the fatherless and the widow. And what I need you to know and hear today is that God loves you. He understands the weight that you are carrying. He knows of the loneliness you experience. He recognizes the challenges and the obstacles that you face daily. And he is with you in those daily struggles. Psalm 146 verse 9. The Lord watches over the sojourners. He upholds the widow and the fatherless. But the way of the wicked he brings to ruin. He is upholding you and he will sustain you. Zechariah 7, 9 to 10, thus says the Lord of hosts, render true judgments, show kindness and mercy to one another. Do not oppress the widow, the fatherless, the sojourner, or the poor, and let none of you devise evil against another in your heart. He is your freedom from oppression, and he will fight for and protect you. And for the rest of us, let us pause to consider the nature of our Father who unites his cause to the widows and orphans, whose heart is revealed throughout the scripture, who to the prophet Isaiah says this, learn to do good, seek justice, correct oppression, bring justice to the fatherless, plead the widow's cause. This while also remembering admonition that's found in the New Testament in the book of James, verse, chapter 1, verse 27. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. And so here we are, friends, in our text, and here stands Naomi, a widow and a single mother left with her two sons. Who would plead her case? Who would serve as her advocate and protector now that Elimelech was gone? Elimelech has not made adequate plans for the care of his family in this foreign land. And the days for Naomi are about to grow even darker. The flicker of hope in verse 4 quickly dies in verse 5. Naomi's sons find wives. 
And though they are Moabites, Orpah and Ruth become daughters-in-law to Naomi. What was once a family of four moving from this land of Moab is now a family of five. Perhaps Naomi's sons would go on to have children with Orpah and Ruth. And, and for Naomi, maybe she would become a grandmother in this land. Maybe her prospects are looking up. But sadly, this would not be the case. First, Ruth's husband, Malin, dies, followed by Orpah's husband, Kilion. And what do we have, friends? One widow becomes three widows. Naomi's family of five is now a family of three. Her two biological sons and her husband are dead. Hope that was once full in this new land is now empty. And friends, quite literally, Naomi has lost everything. Moved away from her people. She's a foreigner in a land with no biological family, no protection. And the writer of Ruth draws out the bleak state of Naomi's present reality by even taking away her name. Look at the end of verse 5. Naomi, whose name is used earlier in the narrative, now becomes simply what? What does it say in verse 5? The woman. So that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. In that day, all that was part of Naomi's identity had been stripped away. A child of Bethlehem and Judah and a Fathrathite Israelite, a wife of Elimelech, a mother of Malin and Kilion. Nothing is left. A woman who, who left the land of fruit and the house of bread full will soon return to the same land, but this time fruitless and empty. One famine has given way to another. The hope of a land of fruit and rest has given way now to fruitless unsettledness. And for Naomi, for Orpah and Ruth, there would be no rest right now in their situation where they stand. All the men are gone. No one say amen. <laughs> Only the women remain. Is this a redeemable situation? Faced with such bleak circumstances, how will God restore, redeem, and win back his covenant or chosen people. And interestingly enough, friends, what we will come to see is that God is not going to honor Elimelech's decision to sojourn in Moab by blessing his family through his sons. Rather, God will choose to work through the women, Naomi and her daughter-in-law, Ruth. And as we continue next week, we will witness that God's plan for redemption actually begins with a journey back towards the promised land. We're going back to Bethlehem. So how might our lives look in light of these realities?
In our text today, friends, Naomi has been brought low. She has been found in a humble estate. Decisions by her husband and the loss of her sons have left her in what we would all in here agree is a truly humbled position. When life seems hopeless and we are brought low and humbled in the circumstances that we live in, how can we hold on to hope? Who gives us the strength to trust that God is still at work, that he is active, that he is living, that his steadfast love will not fail us, that his mercies are new every morning? When we wake up and we feel lonely, some of us miss the warmth of the spouse who was once next to us in bed for so long. We miss the daily interactions. How can we hold on to the precious memories that the Lord calls to mind and know that our Father in heaven loves us? When the days seem long and the children have places to be and the laundry and dishes are piled up and the schoolwork needs to be finished and someone needs to pick someone up from practice and the car needs an oil change, but it's our only vehicle. Take heart and know that the joy of the Lord can be our strength. Jesus can give us the strength and the endurance that we need to make it. Jesus is the one that gives us strength and gives us hope in difficult days. Isaiah chapter 41, verse 10, Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. And what we see today, friends, what we see today, the great hope that we have in this text, is that this is only the beginning of Ruth's story. In a few short generations, Ruth's great-grandson will sit on the throne of Israel as king, and he will pen a hymn about the steadfast love of our God and how his love endures forever. And in that hymn, in verse 23, he will pen these words. And I wonder if his great-grandmother's story was at the forefront of his mind. It is he who remembered us in our low estate, for his steadfast love endures forever. Amen. It is Jesus who gives us strength to live with the hope even in the bleakest of days. He he has found us in our most lowly estates, dead in our trespasses and sins according to the ways of this world. He saved us, redeemed us, brought us back, drew us out, and raised us up together with him. He is our strong tower, our rock, our fortress, and our mighty deliverer. Team, would would you come as we close our service? In prayer. Lord, we are motivated by the testimony of your faithfulness that is on full display throughout the pages of your word. And as one of our widows recently reminded me in a conversation that I was having with her. 
When we cannot see what your hand is doing, Lord, would you give us the strength to trust your heart? To know that you are good. That your steadfast love never fails. That you are holding us. That you are keeping us. That you are working out your plans and your promises through us. May we all be able to say, no matter whatever circumstance or situation in life we face, it is well, it is well with my soul. Amen. Before we dismiss today, I just want to highlight a few announcements. They're in your weekly, but they're things that are important. Next week, as you know, we get an extra hour of sleep, which is a great thing for all of us. Yeah, but I would ask you to consider redeeming that extra hour of time with us next Sunday evening and coming back and praying with us here at Calvary Monument Bible Church for our country and for our nation. Next Sunday at 6.30 p.m., for those who are not able to come back, there will be an option available online. Come back and pray with us for all of the events that are facing our country over the next few weeks. Also, there's an opportunity for baptism and a child dedication coming up at our next Family Life Hour. There's communication forms to be filled out. If you can help us out by filling out those out, that would be great. The tithes and offering boxes are in the back as you exit. There's an Operation Christmas Child shoebox in the lobby if you'd like to take one. Ushers are going to dismiss today from back to front. And of course, we have adult Bible fellowship classes for you to participate in if you're staying today. As you go about your week this week, might you go with the hope that the God whose steadfast love never fails is with you and going before.